Welcome to URI's podcast series, a podcast proposed by the Armament Industry European Research Group. Welcome to the seventh episode of URI's new podcast series, a new format to encourage fresh strategic thinking in the field of European defense industrial policies. In this episode, we will continue discussing the post-Ukraine defense budget increases and their impact on the European defense industry. After Netherlands, the UK, Sweden, Lithuania, Poland and Spain, we will today have a look at the case of Belgium. To deal with this topic, we have the pleasure to welcome Alexander Matelar, Senior Research Fellow at Egmont in Brussels and Professor at the Brussels School of Governors. Welcome to this podcast, Alexander, and thank you for accepting our invitation. Good morning, Gaspar. It's a pleasure to be here. So um, let me shortly introduce um, the topic of today. Since the beginning of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Belgium has announced major transformations in the field of defense. In June 2022, the country has adopted the STAR plan, which foresees a modernization of the Belgian armed forces and an increase in defense spending by 2030. It also calls for strengthening of cooperation, such as, for example, the existing strategic partnership with France, Camus in the land sector, or with Netherlands in the naval sector, uh, the Benesam Agreement. Belgium has also announced its um, intention to become a European hub for the production of small caliber ammunition, for example. So with regard to the situation, could you please, um, Alexander, tell us a bit more about the impact of the Ukrainian war on Belgium's defense budget and tell us how it will evolve in the next years. Thank you for such a thought-provoking question, Gaspar. Mm -hmm. I would respond that paradoxically, the impact of the war on Belgian defense policy until um, today is actually fairly limited in the sense that the um, the, the sense of urgency that the war in, um, in Ukraine created, it helped the Belgian government to approve the latest defense reform plan, uh, Plan STAR, which you referred to earlier. But that plan was really already in the making for um, multiple years before the war broke out. Actually, if you read the security environment section of the plan, it still says that interstate war in Eastern Europe in the time horizon until uh, 2030 is unlikely. So the defense reform plan was explicitly geared towards a security environment that did not yet take um, the return uh, of of collective defense and the risk of um, major conflict with Russia seriously. Plan STAR was agreed, uh, and it was a a sort of um, a difficult process at the political level to get uh, the the seven-party coalition to to agree upon that reinvestment. In that sense, the war did help, but the only thing that um, was then added later on that was really sort of uh, a very modest step in uh, adapting what was already planned earlier is uh, uh, what I would call a modest effort, the so-called readiness initiative, in which uh, the Belgian government authorized uh, the defense staff uh, to spend um, up to 1 billion euros extra on top of uh, all the the budgetary credits already foreseen in Plan Star uh, to be spent in budget years 2022, 2023, 2024, 
um, to uh, increase munition stocks. I would call that a modest effort because, yes, it it came on top of uh, Plant Star, but in terms of um, the the state of the stockpiles, they were pretty empty when the war started, and um, one billion uh, euro for filling up the stockpiles. That's not. That's not a lot of money, uh, frankly speaking, and probably only um, a sort of uh, stopgap measure to sort of plug the most urgent gaps. Uh, it is clear that the Belgian defense posture will need another major strengthening on top of what has mm. already been agreed. But there is no political consensus uh, within the present coalition to take uh, further steps um, this legislative period. So my assumption is we will see another uh, major uh, investment plan uh, being put on on the table of the next government uh, when it enters uh, in probably uh, uh, budget year 2025. Mm. And maybe on the on the defense budget, um, how can you explain that Belgium's um, defense budget is so far below the goal of two um, percent GDP? Because I've read that um, Belgium uh, uh, foresees to to spend uh, something like one point thirty five percent of the GDP by two thousand twenty six. Why aren't there bigger increases planned? It's a long story, but to cut it short, um, in the post. Cold War environment, Belgium decreased its defense expenditure faster than um, the European average and the neighboring countries. Uh, And so we went deeper in hollowing out the structure. And then at the Whale Summit in 2014, uh, all the allies agreed to halt the decline and aim to increase towards uh, 2%. we implemented that decision, but we only did it from 2018 onwards. So even after the Wales uh, defense, defense Investment Pledge, um, we sort of yeah went deeper for another couple of extra years, and we bottomed out um, in yeah budget year 2017, it was, at uh, a level of uh, 0.88% of GDP. So we actually yeah went deeper than most other European countries, which means we have a longer and a steeper climb upwards uh, to get to the 2%. Mm-hmm. We are now uh, in the NATO reporting uh, for last uh, calendar year, 2022. Uh, we were at um, 1.22%. Uh, we are continuing to go upwards uh, to 1.55 by the end of the decade. That is pretty much locked because, yeah, um, the contracts have been signed. Uh, the recruitment is ongoing. So the uh, the medium term planning is, uh, is fairly solid. Mm. There was a new political commitment um, expressed um, by our prime minister at the, at the Madrid uh, summit last year. Um, to continue growing beyond 2030 and then yeah, getting uh, to the 2% by the mid-2030s. Uh, that is to say, yeah, 10 years later than originally agreed. And, and has there been um, in Belgium a debate um, to create um, some kind of a special fund uh, such as uh, created by the Germany, by Germany or by Poland? Or um, it was never on the table? There has been no debate on a, on a special fund as the, the Germans have now um, constructed it. Um, actually, already two defense reforms ago, we uh, switched to a model of having um, long-term military programming laws. 
uh, which was partly inspired by the, the French uh, model of the Loi de Programmation Militaire uh, and the, the Danish um, equivalent uh, to that. And so we now have seen the second edition of such a, uh, a military programming law following the adoption uh, of Plan Star. Mm. And um, my assumption would be that we will have a, a new incoming government uh, post the 2024 elections. There will be yeah uh, another a third iteration of the the military programming law, mm-hmm. um, and my expectation would be that the the main effort will concentrate on adding depth to all the new capability sets mm. um, that are um, substituting for the older platforms that have been phased out already or will phase out in in the coming in the coming years. And I say uh, adding depth very specifically because the the two previous defense reform plans, the first one from 2016, decided to modernize major uh, the major weapon systems, and then the second uh, plan, Star, uh, that has recently uh, been uh, been agreed, was primarily zooming in on uh, regenerating the uh, the personnel structure and adding complementary capabilities, mostly combat support, combat service supports in the land domain, mm-hmm. and a couple of uh, of other niche uh, capabilities. It's Actually, it's a perfect transition to my next question, because uh, the next question was, um, what are the, the capability priorities for Belgium in the next years? And, and would you say that they have changed after the war in Ukraine? Has Belgium realized some capability gaps and decided to adapt this um, capability planning, or does it stick to what was planned before the war in Ukraine? As the Belgian defense establishment was downsizing uh, in the period in time when it sort of went through the the bottleneck period at the lowest level of, of defense investment, the design was then to essentially allow the force to survive based on maintaining an array of core combat capabilities, motorized um, infantry uh, as the, the sort of spearhead for, for the land forces, uh, a smaller special operations regiment uh, uh, alongside that, an air force uh, with uh, a single fleet of, of multi-role fighters and a transport fleet of uh, A400Ms, and a navy with frigates developing uh, anti-submarine uh, warfare capabilities um, and um, mine countermeasure uh, vessels. So that was essentially the core menu of options that uh, the the defense staff wanted to to retain. That sort of worked out, but all the existing plans essentially are geared around the procurement of very um, limited numbers of everything. And so the the next big effort will be to add depth again. Uh, Because if you uh, zoom in on um, motorized uh, maneuver units, um, what's the current plan? Well, effectively, the current plan is uh, for six battalions, two of them cavalry uh, with Jaguar uh, vehicles um, that are are being procured. They're uh, arriving one of the coming years. But if you then look at the actual numbers, yeah, we're procuring 60 Jaguars. And yeah, then the remaining four battalions will be uh, on the, the Griffin for uh, artillery support. We're procuring uh, César uh, artillery pieces 
And then if you uh, turn to uh, uh, the situation for the Air Force, A400Ms uh, are in the process of, uh, of being delivered. Uh, in total, when all of them will have arrived, uh, we'll have seven uh, or eight if you uh, add the one that is, uh, uh, that is owned by the colleagues from Luxembourg. Mm -hmm. The combat aircraft fleet, we will have a, a phase out of the F-16 and a phase in uh, of the F-35 fleet uh, in the second half of this, uh, mm -hmm. of this decade. Uh, the number of uh, F-35s that uh, have been ordered are 34. So um, it is a, a sort of capable force in the different domains, but the numbers are just very shallow. Mm. Uh, and so the, the big effort will be to sort of get, get the numbers up um, in particular, because if we, if we turn to the, the land domain, six motorized uh, battalions will not allow us to uh, sort of feed what is now developing as the NATO new force model, which is, yeah, nonetheless, the, the level of ambition that you would, uh, that you would expect Yes. Uh, of a country of Belgium's size. Mm -hmm. You you mentioned um, the F-35 uh, combat aircraft, so this is off uh, the shelf procurement, um, but normally Belgium has a, a tradition, culture of uh, cooperating with its neighbor country, um, as we mentioned in the introduction with France or with the Netherlands. So how much uh, emphasis would you say is given in the development of a cooperative project at EU level compared to off-the-shelf procurement? What is the balance between those two types of procurement? Our procurement policy has actually swung from one extreme to the other in the sense that uh, only, say, yeah, 15, 20 years ago, there was a strict policy to buy only off the shelf. And we effectively reduced uh, defense R&T and defense R&D to quasi zero, which had, of course, uh, an extremely detrimental effect on um, the state of uh, the, the defense industrial base, uh, to the extent that there is still such a thing in Belgium, in the sense that most of it has been destroyed as a result of yeah, the, the decrease of defense um, expenditures and the, def and the decrease of defense R&D in particular. The government understands that that has gone way too far and is now changing gear from 100% off the shelf to trying to co-develop all sorts of things again. The problem is, of course, going from one extreme to the other, it doesn't work in a short time frame. So there is now a, an almost effort to sort of um, reconstruct uh, the defense R&T and the defense R&D landscape in close yeah, synergy between national funding lines and the European Defense Fund that has also uh, now come into being. But the, the main problem is that European defense R&D effort has come too late in time to help address the capability shortfalls that are present now. Because by and large, we've had to decide on the regeneration of the weapon systems at a point in time where the defense industrial landscape was essentially yeah, a complete wasteland. I think over the, over the long term, we are now rebuilding the, um, the defense R&D uh, landscape uh, and uh, plugging into all sorts of development mm. projects, but it does not solve 
are capability shortfalls in the short to medium term. And we really cannot wait for the long-term R&D efforts to come Mm. to fruition, Mm. because especially for uh, the higher end spectrum, we are facing very serious shortfalls, not 20 years from now, but really now and in the the entire time horizon between today and and 2040, we will be pretty light uh, on numbers and stocks. And that is the urgent problem. As you mentioned, uh, I mean, uh, since the beginning of war, we've seen that uh, a lot of countries faces uh, um, uh, important shortfalls and there is an urgency that uh, pushes them to to buy, let's say, in a non-coordinated way. There is very little uh, coordination, consultation between member states in their capability choices. Would you say that it's different in Belgium? Has Belgium consulted its neighbor or other countries um, before planning its uh, new expenses, or not really? Um, yes, it did. There is a very strong multinational uh, preference um, that exists in Brussels, in Belgian political circles, really yeah, spanning across uh, the, the, party, uh, the party landscape. So for all the choices that we have already made, that were choices that... Uh, received careful thoughts and um, that are all uh, synchronized with uh, at least one or several major uh, major partners. Uh, so essentially, it's sort of um, pursuing a strategy of not putting all the eggs in one single basket of always teaming up with uh, the same uh, country, but pursuing close partnerships with uh, a variety of partners um, basically, uh, the frigates were um, uh, teaming up with uh, uh, with the Dutch. Uh, the MCM vessels are, are actually built by Naval, but uh, for um, meeting Belgian and Dutch uh, requirements uh, together. The uh, the motorized land forces are sort of regenerating on the basis of that close partnership uh, of the capacité motorisée. Uh, with uh, the Belgian land forces essentially plugging into the whole Scorpion program, but yeah, at the at the medium uh, range, so without um, uh, without the main battle tank, and for the air force um, uh, combat aviation, yeah, we're essentially transitioning from the F thirty from the F sixteen user community that we had yeah over time a very good experience with uh, to uh, the new F thirty five. Uh, user uh, community with uh, the transport aircraft. Yeah, the story is uh, is uh, is well known. So there is no single capability that we are pursuing on our own based on national preferences. It is closely aligned with partners, but pursuing a variation of partnerships uh, in a way that sort of diversifies risk, if you will. Uh, and of course, now the the key challenge that lies ahead is in the NATO community, the, the return of collective defense is now seen by essentially all allies as something uh, that is happening for real. And that is, of course, yeah, generating much more challenging targets to be met by individual allies in terms of the numbers and the depth that mm. uh, needs to be uh, to be brought uh, to uh, uh, to the table. Mm. So it's it's very interesting. So actually, from what you say, I, I, I will um, 
Uh, keep in mind that Belgium is not the best uh, in Europe regarding um, defense spending, but it's one of the, the country that cooperates and coordinates the, the most regarding its uh, procurement. So this is very, very interesting. Um, we're running out of time, so I'm jumping to my last question. Um, so as you know, the, the EU is trying to implement some tools to um, develop uh, common procurement and structure common procurement in um, Europe. Um, what is Belgium's uh, position regarding this um, new um, joint procurement tools? Do you think that these tools should allow the buying of uh, non-European equipment? Well, at, at the diplomatic level, there is quite a positive vibe uh, towards uh, EDIRPA um, and, and EDIP, in particular because there is awareness that defense markets are under an incredible amount of stress as a result of the war. Uh, suddenly, demand is exploding and supply cannot follow and prices um, are going up as a result. The Belgian government, knowing where it is in terms of uh, the budgetary situation, is extremely afraid of that because it has a catch-up effort to undertake And if prices are um, skyrocketing, that only makes the challenge uh, more difficult to accomplish. So there is much hope that we will manage to constrain defense price increases through common procurement. I think that makes sense, especially as far as ammunitions uh, stockpiles uh, are concerned. Um, but there is, at the diplomatic level, also a bit of an, an overestimation of what these instruments can actually accomplish because you need to look at the capability sets. The capability sets for Belgium have essentially been, been chosen and you're stuck with the supply lines that, that exist to feed those, uh, those capability sets. So now, yeah, we know, yeah, we would like to, uh, in the future add an extra number of Césars and in particular have uh, enough ammunition stockpiles for those uh, Césars. And I mean, you can sort of repeat the argument for all the other capabilities, but if everyone is running for to the same supply line, small and medium-sized countries will sort of be pushed back towards more to the back, favoring large orders. Huh? And in, in that sense, the European proposals on common procurement Yeah, should help us deal with that particular uh, particular problem. And they can also help this. industry to sort of plan for the long term, mm -hmm. because essentially, yeah, the supply line, the supply chain uh, needs to grow in size. Uh, and, yes, um, it offers a bigger visibility to yeah, the industry. And, and, the, and uh, arms manufacturers also need to what new size they need to grow mm. the uh, the supply chain, right? And maybe very shortly on the opening to uh, non-European um, uh, equipment. I think that really goes beyond Belgium mm -hmm. in the sense that Belgium will sort of seek to help bring about a consensus on that issue, specifically because it would like to see uh, as much use as possible of uh, common procurement systems. The preference for buying exclusively European, I really do not see consensus amongst the 27 emerging on that particular point. So I think there is um, a good argument to be made for also allowing non-European equipment 
simply to get the European consensus uh, at the 27, and essentially, yeah, to to increase the scale of what is possible uh, in terms of procurement, because essentially going for a policy of buying exclusively European carries a, a very high risk uh, of breaking up Europeans internally amongst themselves. Well, thank you very much, Alexander. It was a pleasure to have you on board today. Thanks for the invitation. Pleasure to be here. And um, thank you also to our auditors and um, see you soon for the next episode. Goodbye. <laughs>